Hi, you're listening to Life in the Brand Lane with the brand guys, Finn and Ron. This is an irreverent look at rock music in brands and brands in rock music. This is a podcast produced by Fresh. Fresh brings you smart thinking for your business problems. Hello there and welcome to another episode of Life in the Brand Lane with Fresh Business Thinking. Joined tonight by Ewan Reid, CEO of Matthew Algae. Hey Ewan. Good evening, Phil. Good to see you. Thank you very much for joining us. How are you doing in these crazy times? Well, crazy. <laughs> it's crazy indeed. Um, yeah, I, th- I think we are just trying to focus on the future as much as anything else for me. I think throughout this, it's, it's really been a time to support our customers. Uh, a lot of our customers in the hospitality sector. Um, so it's been about trying to support them through this, um, keep our own business as fit and healthy as we can in the process. Um, I really focus on the future. So a lot of what we've been focusing on in, in 2020 has been about setting the business up. 2021 and beyond you know that's a lot of things that we were looking at at the tail end of 2019 we've accelerated this year so like a lot of businesses where you've been in a position from a cash standpoint and and operationally to you know to keep people working and to keep projects going then that's what we've done so that innovation piece has been really important to us during the course of this year for the future it's never been truer i think if you stand still you're going to be left behind but um, how, how about give us a little bit of background? Here we are at the start of the, another year, and we've got these great plans, and you know, fingers crossed that it's going to be so much better than last year. But tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about the business. Um, what what do you do? Yeah. Um, I'll maybe start with the business if that's okay. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, so the, the business is. An old Scottish company, so we come from that kind of trading tradition, and we were established in 1864 on the banks of the Clyde, originally tea traders, and uh, we moved into coffee. We had our first female leader of the business in the 1950s, um, and she took the decision to move the business into coffee after the Second World War. Uh, and the, the business really became coffee roasters at that time. Uh, gradually moved out of, of tea uh, lending in Glasgow. Um, we moved to the Gorbals in 1964, um, so after the first 100 years, and we are still proudly uh, located there. We have a, a roastery there that's producing coffee for 3,500 customers throughout the, the UK and Ireland. Uh, as I said, mainly in the hospitality sector, mainly in the cafe sector. Uh, some some household names out there. So we, we do all of Marks and Spencer's cafes, for instance, but we also have, you know, thousands of smaller independent cafes that are very much the lifeblood of our business. Um, and uh, we roast coffee. We provide machines, technical support, marketing support, business development support for hospitality sector and customer training as well. And then we have another sector to our business called the Spirit Warehouse, which is about all the things you need in a coffee shop apart from the coffee. So we call that everything but the coffee, and we call that espresso warehouse. So that's that's pretty much our business in a uh, in a nutshell. 
That, that's brilliant. And, you know, we could go into a geography lesson, an economics lesson, the history lesson on, on all of that. So you've got, um, you know, the history of Glasgow, um, you know, oh, yeah. consumption <laughs> history. You've got everything there within your history. I love it. Yeah, very much. And, you know, that's those run as themes through what we do. I, I think it's coming from Glasgow, I'd like to think there's a certain grounding to the business. There's a certain honesty to the business around its values as well, you know, which is reflected in the city. I'm a proud Glaswegian myself as well. So, yeah, it's very, very much part of our DNA. Um, and it's, yeah, you know, I've, I've personally been in the business since 93. I joined pretty soon after leaving university. Uh, I have a background in food science. I'm a sort of food chemist, a little bit of microbiology, a little bit of biochemistry, a little bit of sensor analysis. That's my background. And I've worked in quality and product development, innovation roles. Uh, I joined the board in 2002, and then I became MD in 2018. Um, and, yeah, it's... It, been an interesting time to be in coffee because you know if you think about it if you go back to the early 90s there were no starbucks in the uk uh costa probably had about 14 stores and you know we've gone through this entire espresso based drinks revolution in the in, in the last 25 years which has changed our consumption patterns here in the uk and created a massive opportunity for businesses like ours to be honest yeah, no, we absolutely have lived through that um, revolution. You, you know, as you know, I spent quite a lot of time in France and Italy, um, you know, around about the time that you started there and um, would come back to Scotland having spent a big chunk of the year having fantastic espressos and so on. And, and at that point, as you say, you really didn't have an option. You probably had to go into like a really good hotel or something to get a decent coffee back then. You know, um, we are quite old men, but, you know, it's not a totally um, distant history, is it? No, exactly. Um, you know, I, I remember when I first started in the industry, you know, our premium accounts at that time were top end restaurants in London. We did all of Sir Terence Conran's restaurants. Uh, and it was really, I guess, in the mid-90s, we really started to focus on uh, the sourcing of our coffee, really trying to understand espresso. And, and, you know, it was a big part of my role, coming from a scientific background, um, to really focus on what the quality parameters there, to really understand how we needed to blend coffee um, <laughs> to make great taste in espresso. Uh, and the importance of barista skills. You know, we were one of the first businesses to create a, a barista training facility here in the UK. We ran some of the, the first ever barista training uh, sessions in London in the mid nineties. Um, and around that time, we also really started to focus on sourcing of coffee. So really trying to understand the supply chains that we bought from, uh, actually to get to know the farmers, uh, importantly. Um, and, you know, it's, a fantastic position where there's some of those farmer relationships that we established in the mid to late 90s are we're still buying from these farmers today you know and as we've come through this journey in the, in 2020 and into 2021 you know those relationships have been really important you know as important as our customer relationships on the other the other direction or the other value chain yeah, and you know, listen, when I knew that I was going to be talking to you, I got really quite excited because there's so much in this brand. You know, I love my Victorian brands that have been able to modernize. That's like that for me, that's almost um the holy grail, and that it's got this lovely heritage and history, but it's been able to modernize um, you know, 
through through a, a whole century and beyond. I think that's great. Um, and and this connection with Glasgow is lovely, but um, I know this great work that you've done at the at the origin, and you know that purpose. And you know, I'm being slightly cynical, but there's a lot of businesses and some in your domain. You know, we won't mention any names that have kind of bolted on this purpose, if you like, and we see it in other domains. But I mean, that's such a great story that you've seen work that you've done. Um, you know, over that period working with the business and that you're still working with them as suppliers. So, um, oh, yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's you know, I think for me on a personal basis, I've had a great, the great, great privilege to travel uh, around the world, obviously, not much in the last last few months, but um, spending time with our supply chain and with producers in uh, you know, in Africa and Latin America and also in Asia. And you know, this is this is development through trade, you know, we're very, very clear on that. You know, we, we do do projects uh, work that even when we do projects, they have a trade mission that sits in behind them always. So, you know, I think for me going into communities and seeing the impact of some of the buying that we're doing in a, and that's on a, you know, it's on a commercial basis, it's not on an altruistic basis, um, but simply through these trading relationships, seeing that you can make an impact uh, and livelihoods in these communities, it's it's been a real privilege for me to see that firsthand. And, it, and to me, it's a really, it's a, a strength uh, knowing that in a brand or in a sector, a uh, business sector, that you can you can have that kind of impact through trade, you know, and uh, and it's it's not too big an ask. It's not too big an ask for the participants. It's not uh, uh, from a farmer standpoint. And it's certainly not too big an ask for us as a, as a manufacturer and supplier into the industry in the UK. No, I'm totally, totally with you on all that. And if there was more businesses, uh, not just uh, talking the talk, but walking the walk like that, I think we'd all be in, in a much better place. Um, listen, we're going to queue up your, your first track here, because I know there's some of those um, points, issues, if you like, with within that, that... Um, you know, we can we can see the ethics or the values coming coming through in this track, and we're going to go back to that important period, back to to 1988, and a significant track, um, which hopefully you'll be able to connect with the brand, but obviously, you know, on a personal level. Yeah, no, and it's it's interesting. I mean, we've we've been we've gone through a rebrand this year, or a kind of refresh and updating of our identity, and really. It was something that we'd started at the tail end of uh, 2019, uh, moved into 2020, and you know now sitting in 2021. It's you know we're really excited about bringing that to the market, and, and really the things that we were looking to to dial up. And uh, I think there's often a, a sort of conservatism in the west of Scotland. We probably don't shout loud enough, and this was about us shouting a little bit more. Um, but it, it was it, it was about dialing up uh, some of that heritage, that sense of place. Um, it was very much that sense of values and ethics, and not only uh, in terms of how we work with supply chain partners, but also how we work with our customer base and with our employees. Um, and the, the other bit there was around um, first and first to market. You know, we we as a business have focused a lot on innovation. Uh, it's been our lifeblood, and we have had some world firsts out there. You know, we delivered the world's first ever triple certified coffee. Um, you know, we we delivered the first ever fair trade espresso blend in the UK, and it and it for us it was about <clears throat> really drawing a line line in the sand and saying we're going to do more of that now. And, uh, 
Um, you know, what's, what sits in behind a brand now is, you know, an aspiration to be extraordinary, an aspiration to be impactful for our customers, but also how we do business as well. And also that first piece, you know, and that innovation piece and every touch point in the business where that's important. So um, I, I've looked at three tracks and it's such a challenge. Uh, I'm a massive music fan and trying to wheedle this down has been one of the toughest things I've had to do in the last few months. But uh, yeah, I, this, this band was really important to me uh, growing up. I'm a musician myself and uh, back in 1988, uh, the month I started university, in Glasgow, I bought Guitar Player magazine, uh, which is an American magazine that was published at that time in the UK. And they had a little thing in there, which you remember, but it was a flexi disc. So there's this little bit of plastic and, and it had a, uh, the cover was a guy called Vernon Mead, played for a band called Living Colour, and the track was Cult of Personality. And then I remember taking this back to my halls of residence at the time, I finding a record player and listening to it. I've just been utterly blown away by this piece of music, you know. Um, it's uh, it was a very much a jumping off point for me. I think it was it was a, a light into American politics. Uh, I think I, I was always interested in you know I, music that shone a light in that area, but uh, this was looking at it very much from an African American standpoint um, and not one that was so much a legacy around, you know, music from the 30s, 40s, 50s, you know, fantastic blues musicians, but at the time this was really current, you know, 1988 was there then. And for me, I mean, if I look at the track itself, we ended by two samples, two spoken word samples, uh, one from 1963, which is uh, from a Malcolm X speech uh, called Message to the Grassroots. And the words are, we want to talk right down to earth in a language here that everyone can understand. And at the other end of a track is bookended by uh, a speech from Franklin D. Roosevelt and actually his inauguration speech from 1933. Uh, and, you know, some very famous words are, which the, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And, you know, th there's massive political context behind those. And there's a reason why uh, those, those words were on that track. You know, this band were uh, African-Americans that were playing rock music and that, didn't happen and there were you know there was structural racism with racism within the music industry that meant that that didn't happen that would mean that they weren't going to get a record deal that would mean that they weren't going to get on mtv and here was a band that fought against that you know came up through in new york through cbgb's um they have a, a fascinating background in terms of uh, their own individual musical heritage you know the berkeley schooled guitarist comes from a, a that 1980s uh, New York jazz scene, which I've, again, that, that light for me, you know, it's, it's utterly amazing. Uh, music I just never would have got to hear if I hadn't had this touch point back in, back in October 88. And I think this song itself, you know, it's really interesting to, to focus on the lyrics, but, you know, it focuses on uh, the cult of personality, which when you think about it today and what we've seen in American politics over the last four years, um, has been enormously important, you know, and, and the responsibility that comes with that, the positives and negatives. Um, I think it also uh, shines a light on the importance of storytelling, you know, and and again, if you look, look to brands, how much that, the importance of that creation standpoint, you know, uh, the honesty of those words and the message that you're going to put out there. It, but it was also about understanding your roots and identity and delivering substance, you know, 
And I think I I went to see this uh, retrospective of this album. It's on an album called Vivid. I'd recommend all your listeners go and get it. It's, it's amazing. Um, <clears throat> and it was a retrospective of that in Glasgow uh, after 25 years. And they opened up with a Robert Johnson track and then they went to a Jimi Hendrix track and then they played this track. And there's a lineage that goes through from that, you know, and there's a reason why the, the tracks were sequenced in that way. You know, this is the, the power of African-American music. Um, and, I, and I think for me, the other thing that's really important to me was that when you listen to it, you know, it, it's got those amazing ingredients. It's got that fantastic rock beat, but with a swing. Uh, and the guitar style is reverential towards the blues. But at the same time, particularly in the soul, um, it goes off in one. You know, it's just amazing. Uh, you've got one of the most innovative creative guitarists still walking the earth today in Bernard Beat. Um, uh, <coughs> reference to the blues, which meets that 1980s New York jazz scene. You know, there's elements of Eric Dolphy in there, a uh, famous jazz and flute player who played with John Coltrane in the 1960s. Uh, and, you know, there's other musical concepts that come in that were really innovative at the time. Ornette Coleman's harmonic theory that comes into it as well. So an amazing piece of music, an amazing piece of music, and, you know, definitely something that could resonate on our brand. Last but not least, the other reason it's important to me is uh, the night before I started my job in Matthew Algae uh, in March uh, 1993, I went to see the band at the Barrowlands. was down the front in the mosh pit, got completely bruised ribs and I had to go into work the next day <laughs> feeling like I'd been run over by a truck and that was my, my first day in the coffee industry. That's, that's, that's brilliant, Ewan. Thank you very much. I don't think you can get a more personal connection when you're actually <laughs> bruised in the ribs. Yeah, <laughs> suffering from my heart. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, so so much in that, and you you've you've done the job and um, perfectly there, and mm -hmm. it's actually sounding more like a music show. Uh, today. Yeah, I, I need to be uh, careful. <laughs> um, and obviously, as mm -hmm. a musician, you're able to pull some of that stuff out. Um, I'll I'll get the the track queued up for people listening on the on the podcast. Um, for me, it's that fusion which is fantastic, you've explained in the, in the music, but I guess you're having to manage this fusion of cultures and, and influence, you know, within your brand, which is, which is really interesting. I, I think definitely, I think, it, you know, that really comes into the innovation pot for us, you know, for product development point of view, you know, I think coffee, like whiskey has endless possibilities in terms of the sensory profile you can play in it. I mean, it's really interesting. I have a, a, a friend of mine, uh, uh, Stephanie McLeod, who is the head, one of the head blenders for a whiskey brand in, in Scotland, and master blender. And, you know, I, I caught up with Stephanie. We were both at university together. And, and my other colleague, Eduardo Christopher uh, Matthew Algy, who and the two of both of them have PhDs in sensory analysis. You know, we often, about product development, uh, and creating blend profiles and sensory profiles. Uh, interesting, Eduardo and I actually look at it sonically, so we'll quite often talk about music or talk about sounds or certain frequencies, mm -hmm. and there's a correlation between what you're tasting and how that might be expressed. Um, so I, I think that you know I can see a direct link <coughs> between what we do and and you know the creativity in music. Um, but also, I think, you know, I think that our 
definitely other areas there, you know, and, and it's back to the honesty piece that we talked about earlier on in, in, in brand, you know, I think, again, going back to this 1980s uh, jazz scene, there was an amazing guitarist at the time, a guy called Sonny Sharrick, um, and he looked at improvisation, and you can absolutely think about this from an innovation standpoint in business today. You know, he he considered that there were three different types of, of improvisers. We can think of that as innovators as well. There was a the creator who could synthesize, essentially, you know, take an idea, synthesize it, deliver on it. Um, you know, and we can think of that as almost the purest entrepreneur that's out there within business. There was a juggler that <coughs> had all the technical skills and was able to uh, create those and bring them together in a way that's very effective. You know, and we see that within large FMCG groups, for instance, where we have these absolutely kicking R&D teams that can throw out products and develop brands, etc. And um, <clears throat> Procter & Gamble be a really good example of that, you know. Um, we have a tinkerer who is somebody that is able just to... Uh, has some of the tools, but really can't use them to deliver. And there's a subset within that that Sonny also talked about, which is the clown that pretends to be a creator, but is actually just making noise. Uh, and that's obvious in the computer sense, sorry, in the music sense, but when we think about it in an innovation sense, you know, it's where we got uh, people talking loud, uh, to steal on our musical term, a James Brown quote, uh, talking loud, ain't doing nothing. So, and yeah, I think that honesty piece uh, in things that we do, uh, but also the application of creative thinking in a brand is is really important as well. Well, I, I'll add one more to, uh, to that and say that I might be a bit of a magpie in in that creativity mix, and um, I'm going to steal the steal the idea that I, I need to do a whiskey show now. So uh, bring <laughs> your three favourite malts, and uh, we'll try and uh, connect it to the brand story. So um, that could be fun. Listen, uh, what I'll do now is we'll play uh, Living Colour, Cult of Personality. For those of you listening in the UK on the podcast, here it is. Okay, um, thanks, Ewan, for bringing that. That is, um, you know, a jump back in time for me and it just worked so so well with the, the story. But moving on um, towards your the, the second track, um, and this... Um, the, the honesty um, is is there from from that first track, obviously. But there's obviously, is, you know, it's, it's quite obvious. Possibly, um, is this the importance of sustainability? And um, you know, how how do you connect that up with this with this next track? Yeah, I I think it's been for us certainly as a band as a sorry as a band as a brand. Um, really at the core of what we've done in the last 25 years. And, and I think this is really starting to try and understand, uh, you know, there's a, there's a classic definition, the three pillars of, of sustainability around uh, environment, social and, and economics. Um, and really over the years, just getting personal understanding and understanding within the business of how these are interlinked, you know, in, a, in our own operations to what our customers do in wider society and, and uh, what we do within supply chain. Um, so, and, and I, th I think this has been for us about developing a, a wider mission. Uh, so certainly in the work that we've done from a supply chain standpoint and the collaborations and partnerships um, that we do with the producers. And I, and I stress in all these things is that we have the easy bit, you know, we, 
we find ways to articulate these in the market, but it's it's a farmer and family that's working on a on a hilltop in uh, remote area of Peru that they're doing the real hard work here. But essentially, what we've been focused on for the last ten years is around climate change adaptation. Uh, so for our own business, it's been about adaptation and mitigation. So trying to reduce our own carbon footprint where we can, we offset um, all that all that good stuff. And within our supply chain, then it's been around working with them. Um, if you're in coffee farmer now, for instance, in parts of Nicaragua or parts of uh, eastern Uganda, where you're growing coffee now, you may not be able to grow coffee in 20 years. So you're, the entire economic system on that mountainside is predicated on that as an economic activity. Um, most of the farms there, particularly in East Africa, will also be farms that are gardens. So essentially there's a little bit of coffee, but there's also food being grown there as well. Um, so a lot of what the coffee industry has been focus, focusing on is that, right, we understand climate change is coming. Um, we in the South, the global South, are going to be hit hardest here rather than in Europe or in North America. And we've got the the, the raw end of the deal, um, but, and, but we're going to have to do them. So we, we definitely view it as our role to try and help with that. And we want to be buying, as I mentioned, we've been buying coffee for two decades from certain communities. I want to be able to buy them in two decades time as well. Mm. So that's that's been a big focus on that. And I think intertwined with that is has been an understanding of economic impact. So if you have what's called climate smart agriculture, you can also manage to increase quality, which means you can increase uh, economic benefits and livelihoods. Um, spun through all this has been themes on gender and also on youth. So I think the gender piece is to articulate this really briefly, you know, if I'm in parts of East Africa, then 75 to 80% of farming activity will be uh, carried out by females mm -hmm. uh, in the family. Uh, only less than 10% of all the agricultural training that's given is received by females. So that ability to transform farms for the future stymied by gender bias at societal levels. Um, so I, again, uh, in a very sensitive way, working with communities to to help drive diversity is really, really important. And normally we're working with community cooperatives. So these are communities, entities that have come together at village level or as a cluster of villages. Uh, and, you know, as soon as you do that, there's almost a pre-selection for participation and for democracy, which allows these communities to drive positively on gender. And youth is important because we have, as we do in Scotland, we have uh, uh, an aging cohort of farmers. You know, uh, we work with a community in a very remote part of Peru, my favorite place in the world to go and visit is the uh, Sandia Valley. Um, and to give you an idea, it's two internal flights in Peru and in about 14 hours on a Jeep to get there. Um, and then you walk four hours to get to the farms. <laughs> so it's it's remote, but an, an amazing place. But the average age of farmers in that area is about 55. Mm -hmm. And the average life expectancy is about 65. So right, it, okay. it's tough. You know, it's, uh, there's a lot of coca leaf production that year now that uh, is driving people away from coffee. So what we do is about trying to create value for farmers. It's about, we have, we have this concept of value co-creation, essentially. Mm. Um, and sustainability plays an enormous part of that. So this next track that I've chosen, um, again, this is a personal favorite of mine. It has a link to Glasgow that I'll explain in a little bit, but um, uh, it's Gil Scott Hearn and his 
longtime uh, creative partner Brian Jackson, and the track's called uh, "Winter in America." Uh, it's off the first minute of a new day uh, album from 1975. Um, it's a track that Gil. Uh, it's just a fascinating musician for me. He is. He's often quoted as being the godfather of rap, but he was so much more than that. You know, he was active in student politics in uh, the late 60s. He was uh, an author, uh, published his first first novels at that time. Um, He moved into spoken words at a poetry movement, uh, late 60s, early 70s. he recorded, you know, that eponymous track of the revolution will not be televised around that time. Um, and he was prolific during the 70s, but he, he had a lot of demons. He um, uh, suffered with drug addiction through a lot of his life and eventually uh, contracted HIV later in life as well. And uh, he was in and out of jail. Uh, I mean, a fascinating individual, amazingly creative, amazingly thoughtful um, uh individual. His link to Glasgow is his father actually played, uh, he came from an African-American standpoint, his father was Jamaican, but his his father played for Glasgow Celtic in the 1950s. Um, And I was lucky enough to see him play in Glasgow three times growing up um, and in my my 20s. Um, But as I say, there's there's an honesty in his music. There's an honesty in everything he did. It's almost a brutal honesty in it, and it pushes you to face up to, to things yourself. And I think it's important that businesses and brands do that. And this track itself, <clears throat> it's it's I can you will hear it shortly, but it's this beautiful slow pace. Uh, it, it's very melancholy. Um, uh, it's when you think about it, what it covers that was uh, apocryphal. I think you know. F- f- being recorded in 1975, the themes it recovers, you know, around the plight of First Nation uh, peoples in America, the, the plight of African-Americans in America, um, really starting to recognise some of the environmental challenges that were in America at that time and that pervade to this day. Um, but it also there's, although there's pessimism, the entire local content, there's a beautiful flute solo, which is played by Brian Jackson within it, and there's a supreme beauty in that, and almost an optimism. Um, and it's given a lot of space within the composition as well. I think we'll hear that later on. Um, so for me, again, that honesty piece, uh, the sustainability themes are definitely there. Um, it's about recognising your weaknesses, but also knowing your strengths to be able to continue your journey. Brilliant. Here it is, Winter in America. And here we are, winter in Scotland. Ewan, thanks for thanks for bringing that. And um, I'm just going to come back to that the the honesty that you you spoke about just before we we played that track there. And um, yeah, it's it's a lovely composition, as as you say. And you know, I it's not it's not in my collection. And at first, I couldn't have placed it because it it does really feel like it's come out of that movement in the late. 60s so you know how you kind of give us um gills like history and how he developed as a creative that makes sense to me but there's still that sense of that um that period mm-hmm. but the the honesty and and you made a really good point about brands being honest and you know it's something that that we talk about quite a lot when we're consulting with fresh is that 
listen, brand isn't, it's not some veneer that you just paint over the top and make everything look pretty. And that there's, you know, you've got to, it's got to be warts and all um, as much as you possibly can. And, you know, you were talking about your brand refresh and there was a bit of introspection. So, you know, what, what were you learning about yourselves as a brand through that? If you can, if you can share anything with us. Yeah, and I, I, th- I think I touched on it briefly uh, at the start. I think for me, it's about um, actually being bolder um, and, and also being bolder to change. So I think it's being braver and what um, I think uh, that really comes out. You know, I had the, that, some spoken word sample we, we talked about earlier on the, the only thing we have to fear is you know honestly you could take that and then the malcolm x sample we're going to speak right down to earth and language that we can understand your clarity of communication honesty of communication and then boldness th- those are things that we 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 definitely felt we needed to embrace more and simplify what we do uh be you know strive towards those world firsts or market firsts um and I think for me, and this is more personal reflection, you know, I, I, we, I've been through two or th- probably three or four different brand identity refreshes at the business in, in the last 25 years. Um, this is the one that I truly love. Uh, you know, I'll be really open here. I've not always loved some of the stuff we've done in the past. Um, and it's also the one that I, I sat back from probably the most, you know, and the other important thing for me was <coughs> we, we have some really talented designers within the business. We've invested in that ourselves in, in the last few years. And it was our own design team that created this, you know, and, you know, we really saw the benefit of them truly understanding the brand, you know, being able to get beyond just a, a design brief because they get it. Um, and, you know, we've really benefited from it. It's not to say there isn't a place for external creatives, but in this occasion, we definitely benefited from that bringing it in-house um and uh, you know i'm really really proud of what the team what the team have achieved yeah i think it's great i love it um you know the mountains for me there's a personal um connection there mm. um, i love you know the animation and, and the music that you've used actually in behind some of those as well and and again you know i totally agree with that point about trying to use your team you know so it's one of the workshops that we use actually the essence so so what we're kind of trying mm. to do the music is um, and we use elements of this with the the team so rather than being a clever agency as you say and you know come along with three um, ideas for you to choose to try and understand that essence from within the team and then there's other stakeholders you know the customer is probably being the most important but um, I, I think that comes through actually so I think mm. it's, a, it's a really a really nice job so so well done thank you um, so we we started off by talking about Glasgow, you as an individual, the company. Um, this third track is is so obviously um, about Glasgow and all the elements of of Glasgow. Um, tell us tell us about this one, you. Yeah, I th- I think for me the thing that and it's interestingly uh, you made the point uh, early on and close to the introduction, Finlay, that about the importance of heritage brands, how you keep them relevant. Mm. Um, and I think there's such a dark art in terms of, I think both from a business model standpoint and from a brand standpoint. And, you know, I'm proud to work for a business that was 
founded in 1864, you know, some fantastic heritage. Um, but I think, you know, there's a real knack to being able to keep that business relevance in the long term, you know, to be able to, particularly in Scotland, we have, we have a lot of family-owned businesses that have to transition from one generation to another. So there's a real knack to doing that. Um, and I think it's it's about creating both an identity and a business model and, and in terms of the values, values that will still be relevant in 10 years' time, an identity that's still relevant in 10 years' time, and a business model that is secure for the future as well. Uh, this <clears throat> next track is a track, of, again, it goes back to uh, 1980s, back to 1984. I should say I listen to a lot of modern music, so, but I've tended to go more retrospectively here. Um, <clears throat> and it's by the Blue Nile, Glasgow band. Uh, the track is Tinseltown in the Rain. Um, I think just reflecting on our own brand journey over the last sort of 18 months, then I think this sense of place, the song's definitely an ode to Glasgow and I can absolutely get that. Um, it's, if you listen to the recording, particularly from a, a music production standpoint, a lot of 1980s music is hard listen these days in some respects. You know, the production values is drenched in gated snare. Um, You've got synths that have just not stood the sense of time. Guitar sounds that haven't stood the the, uh, the passing of, of time either. This is a record that's beautifully recorded. You know, I understand with the band recording it, it was recorded just instead of Edinburgh. It's an absolute labour of love. You know, and I think they were virtually broke for it and ended up having to sleep in the studio to uh, in order to be able to afford to keep on recording it. And it was recorded for quite a bit of time before it was released. Um, and it's another fascinating story for me, and again, it's a really interesting brand, um, Lynn Hi-Fi, which is this eponymous hi-fi, high-end hi-fi brand uh, based just outside of Glasgow, really, really innovative brand. Um, they created their own record label uh, with a view to being able to own music to showcase their products, you know, and, and connect with an, another part of the music ecosystem. Um, uh, the Blue Nile were one of the first bands to be on that, and I have a, two personal connections with this record. And the first one is, Lim Records had a, a a record lathe that they bought, and that's how you cut the vinyl. And a good friend of mine's job in the late '80s was actually refurbishing that lathe, and the uh, in order to make it work for uh, again for Lim. Um The lead singer in, in Blue Nile's. Uh, a gentleman called Paul Buchanan, uh, and he still lives in Glasgow to this day. Um, he's a bit of a recluse, but an amazing creative individual, and I have had the chance to meet him uh, earlier on. I had the embarrassment of playing in a band at the time. We were playing a party in the garden and uh, playing our music, and who walked in but Paul Buchanan? So <laughs> no pressure. So, um, But <clears throat> uh, the other important thing for me is this album's almost places right on the edge of the gobbles. So if you look at the album cover, uh, it's uh, a building that's no longer there, but uh, it's located in Cathcart Road, close to the Herman Baptista Church. And it's about a five minute walk from as a business. And it almost sounds like it was recorded in a, in a bubble. You know, I think it's, it has this own sense of stay true to its own aesthetic. It's, that's never been tarnished uh, with the passing of time. So, yeah, and, and I think for us, it's if I look to the brand journey, then it, you know it's definitely about Glasgow, and we we have brought that to the fore and the new identity, 
graphic elements that we've we've developed. Uh, and it, for me, it's about having a sense of forward visual vision, well knowledge and heritage. And this track is all about that. Um, and a desire to try and create something that's timeless, but beautiful and being true to yourself at the same time. Brilliant. Well, let's listen to Tinseltown in the rain. Yep, yeah, Ewan, I, I understand exactly what you mean. It's like, yes, it's 1984, but it's not stuck in 1984. Oh, no. mm -hmm. Exactly what you mean, that some records are like, yeah, I know when that comes from with, you know, that sound. Um, and that's because there was a lot of kind of mass-produced stuff round about then, wasn't there? Really, they were just trying to churn out hits. Even some of the, the, the bigger bands who'd maybe come through the late 70s and 80s, it all come a bit samey. But that is, that is a, an absolute classic. And I love the way that you connect that with the, the city, but your business and, and, and brand as well. There's, there's so much good on there. But, but it is about looking to the future now. So, so here we are looking at 21. You've given us some of your um, plans, but have you got any scoops for us? Any anything new that the brand's going to do that you've not mentioned up till now? Um, I think we are investing a lot in uh, digital technology. Um, again, this is this is not necessarily down to COVID. This is actually work that we kicked off back in beginning of twenty eighteen and continued to develop through twenty nineteen, and we're expecting to launch. And I, and I think it's about creating a. The hospitality sector that we work with is is all about relationships. So I think if you deploy digital technology, it needs to be there to support what you're doing, uh, support those human interactions, uh, not necessarily to replace them. Um, I'm very very clear that that needs to be an adjunct to to what our commercial teams do and what we do from a marketing standpoint. So we're we're looking areas how we can enhance. Uh, create tools that help drive profitability and revenue for our own, for our customers, without a doubt. That's something that I'll see coming down the line. Um, and also we, we're investing at the same time in uh, product development. We've got some really interesting coffees we're marketing under our, we have a little sub-brand called Black Nectar. And, it, you know, as I mentioned, we've been working with a lot of producers for, for a long time now. Um, producing absolutely amazing coffees and some of these we use for you know great tasting mainstream espresso blends um, but every now and again when you're traveling and tasting coffees with farmers you'll taste these little gems and in, in the industry we call these micro lots so a container of coffee might be 300 sacks this will be three bags and we are buying those three bags and bringing them over keeping them segregated and it allows us to take some really interesting things that are happening. If you look at what's happened in craft ale, for instance, over, over the last 20 years, around different approaches to what hops that use, different fermentation techniques, all of these great things, all of that's also happening in parallel in coffee. You know, So we have people producing coffee now that's being fermented anaerobically. Um, we have... Uh, I'm working with a producer group in uh, in Peru just now that's actually taking uh, two-stage fermentation and actually adding uh, lactobacillus uh, that we use for uh, starter cultures and yogurts, for instance, to one part of the fermentation and then adding yeast, which you'd use uh, in, uh, in beer production in the second part of the fermentation. And this is all happening within steel retorts. Normally, 
fermentation in coffee is, is a concrete tank. You get some breeze box, you throw the coffee in, you throw some water in, you live in 40 hours, out it comes, on you go. And there's an art to that. And what these producers are trying to do and farmers are trying to do is to bring science to that. So I think that for me is that this is where the true innovation will come in coffee in the future. And it's all part of the sustainability piece, you know, because you can now produce coffee with amazing, great tasting flavor, but use a tenth of the water that you might have used 10 years ago, for instance. So yeah, all good stuff. No, that's, that's, that's brilliant. And I guess that's the kind of the stage of the industry and the product that there has to be that sort of innovation to, well, to differentiate a little bit, to keep me interested as a consumer. Um, Absolutely. You know, and I, and I think, you know, we, we still as a nation, we still see coffee as coffee as coffee. And maybe understanding you can have coffee from Colombia, but actually, you know, if I look at coffee in Peru, we have all these little micro regions within the country, you know, all with their own, you use this word from wine, terroir. Um, and we have different varieties in, uh, of Arabica beans in the same way you have different varieties of wine. You know, we've not really started to have that discussion with consumers yet. I know, and in the same way you have different approaches to winemaking and fermentation or in beer, wine, whiskey, you have all of that in coffee as well. So we've got such a great story to tell. And, you know, I, I, it's interesting, I often say this, but if I look at our job as a roaster, it's almost taking all that hard work and innovation that a farmer does and very faithfully uh, making that into helping our customers make that into a great cup of coffee. And we are there almost as a custodian of the coffee allow our customers to sell it and to represent the great work that our farmers have done in origin so and you know that's a, a lovely summary there's your your mission your business your brand summarized mm. beautifully um listen i just have to thank you for um bringing three amazing tracks which um not were only uh, interested in on a, on a sonic level but i think you've done a great um history lesson for us, a bit of economics, geography, um, and, and unpacked the brand, brought your brand essence in a very genuine, honest way. So Ewan, thank you very much for that conversation. Absolute pleasure, friendly. Great to talk and uh, let's hope for an exciting year in 2021. This podcast was produced by Fresh. For more information on our services, please visit fresh.biz. F-R-E-J-Z dot B-I-Z. This podcast can be found on all the usual podcast channels. Please leave a comment and share with your friends and colleagues.